Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, January 27, 2020. I'm Rick Morton, Lifeline's Vice President of Engagement, and this is the Defender Bible Study. Today in our Bible study, we continue our study in 1 John in chapter 4. We have a really special treat today. Joining us today, leading our Bible study, is Gavin King. Um, Gavin is a law student at Samford University's Cumberland School of Law. Uh, He is a graduate of Opelika High School and a graduate of Mississippi State University. Uh, Over the past six years, Gavin has served churches in Mississippi and Alabama as a worship leader and a student pastor. And he currently serves on the staff at Iron City Church in the south side of Birmingham. Gavin is engaged to our own Erica Williams and, they'll, and will soon be adopting Lindley Angel. Uh, in August, they're going to be moving to Montgomery where Gavin will work for an area law firm as they begin to plant a church in the Coverdale neighborhood. Gavin was kind enough to join us to address the topic of racial reconciliation on the Martin Luther King holiday. And so uh, join me as we listen to Gavin King. Good morning, man. Uh, grace and peace be multiplied to all of you. Um, it is good to be here. I am thankful for Lifeline. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, because my fiance uh, works here, uh, but also because of the good work that you've done uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, nearly 57 years ago, Uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King sat unjustly in prison in a Birmingham city jail. Having been arrested on Good Friday, he took time in his incarceration to respond to a letter signed by several Birmingham clergy, preachers, pastors, including the pastor of the First Baptist Church and First Presbyterian Church of Birmingham. They ridiculed Dr. King's mere presence in Birmingham. And these are some of Dr. King's words. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that come across my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the day and I would have time for no constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should articulate why I'm in Birmingham. I am in in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometown, just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly answer to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant 
of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. You deplore the demonstrations that are pleasant, presently taking place in Birmingham, but I am sorry to say that your statement did not express a similar concerns for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I am sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time. But I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of the city left the Negro community with no alternative. Dr. King had the audacity to assert right here in Birmingham on the margins of a folded up newspaper that racial injustice in part rested squarely on the conscience of Birmingham's white churchgoers. Dr. King was not going to concern himself with responding to fools. And I must say I'm with him on that. I, I don't have the time or the patience or the inclination uh, to argue with people who speak foolishly about the race issue. In fact, I, I'm only here because I believe uh, that you, or at least most of you, do not believe that racial injustice is some construct made up by liberals to scare us. Or that racial reconciliation is a term dreamed up by communists. I can just leave those arguments to the keyboard cowboys on Facebook and on Twitter. The white pastors who signed the letter that Dr. King was responding to were not segregationist zealots. In fact, most of them were considered moderates on the race issue. In fact, the pastor at First Baptist Birmingham was kind of conceived so, seen so moderate that folks on the left and the right, if you could use those terms of the race issue, both detested him. Dr. King believed of them as I believe, as I believe of you, that you are people of genuine goodwill. Dr. King had the audacity to assert that being moderate was not just a problem, but it was the problem with racial division in the church. The problem was not with extremist Klansmen, but rather with Christians who sat idly while injustice happened around them. Uh, as we look at today's text, I, I, let me just say that I do believe in a steady and needed diet uh, of biblical exposition, uh, but I cannot discuss racial reconciliation and uh, faithfully exposit 16 verses uh, of 1 John uh, this morning. I, I preached yesterday at our church. Uh, I am preaching later this week at Cornerstone, uh, and I am still in school, and so faithfully expounding uh, upon a third text this week uh, would probably be a bit much, but I do want to look at what uh, God's word has to say. So if you would join me in 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 and 8.
Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The writer of this text this morning says something pretty simple. The litmus test for our godliness is how we love one another. Put another way, lovelessness is godlessness. Seems simple enough, right? It's important to note here that John is writing this letter to churches, likely the same seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, the churches where he spent the latter days of his ministry. Here's why this is important. John, like Dr. King, is writing to people of goodwill. He is writing to people who call themselves Christians, and he says, friends, beloved, love one another. We don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to like the same food. We don't have to like the same music. We don't have to vote the same way. But of necessity, we must love one another. The word for love here is agape. It's a Greek word, which is important. This is the highest form of love in the original Greek. This is the love with which God is described as having for us which means this is the way that we are commanded to love one another. And and here's why I bring that up. Most of you at this point are saying that they really bring Gavin in here to teach us some Sunday school lesson on love. I imagine your first thought is, I love all people. I don't hate anyone. But I need to say this. The enemy of agape love is not hate. The enemy of agape love is indifference. That's the argument that Dr. King makes in his letter, an argument that I want to make afresh today. So many Christian brothers and sisters believe that they are displaying love to their black brothers and sisters by simply not hating us. Just because you don't personally personally hold animus towards black folks, because you personally don't use racial slurs, because you don't actively contribute to racial inequity that you are showing love. It's said so often that it almost seems cliche at this point, but let me say that love, especially agape love, is a verb. It's an action word. Love must be manifested. It must be shown. It does not have the luxury of being passive. Love cannot sit silently. For my parents in the room, imagine if your child or children looked at you and said, do you love me? And you responded to them with silence. Or, or worse, you responded to them with, well, I don't hate you. I, um, before I got to Iron City, served on uh, the staff of a church uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. I, I won't name uh, that church, but Um, One Sunday after church, uh, I took a girl on a date. Uh, She is the most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. Uh, And I'm not just saying that because she's sitting in this room. Um, And a young man from that church saw me buying this young lady's meal. And that young man called me the N-word. 
He said, I cannot believe she is letting this inward buy her meal. Now, I'm certain that most people in that church would not use the N-word. I'm confident that most people in that church, in fact, think that the N-word is wrong. But this church was painfully silent about what happened from their church member. There was no correction. There was no discipline, no nothing. Now, there were plenty of people who knew that it was wrong, but sat idly silent. That is not love, brothers and sisters. And frankly, it's the kind of silence and indifference that has pervaded the white American church since its inception. It was failing to love as scripture commands that allowed people of genuine goodwill to sit in churches and movements and denominations that many of us in this room are members of and sat indifferently as they allowed black and brown folks to be sold as slaves, as they allowed the Jim Crow South to perpetuate, as they urged people like Dr. King to go home. And even now, I see folks of goodwill on the verge of making similar mistakes. I watch Christians of goodwill who sit indifferently as black mothers continue to be far more likely to die in childbirth than white mothers. As black men become incarcerated at exorbitant rates. As poor black and brown churches on the inner city struggle to survive while white churches on the suburbs sprawl and build new buildings. Dr. King would say to us that this ought not be. Agape love is loving neighbor as yourself. And brothers and sisters, if you see in black communities something that is not good enough for your community, how can you sit idle and silent as margins continue to grow? Here's why we cannot be passive. Will you look at me in verse nine? Look with me in verse nine. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Our version of love cannot be passive or indifferent because God's love towards us was not indifferent or passive. When God saw all of us in this room and he saw all of us dead and sick in our sin with absolutely no hope on our own for redemption, he did not simply throw his hands up as if to say, that's not my problem. No, God, at great cost to himself, became a suffering servant for you and I. He took on human flesh. He dwelt among humanity. He came near to us. He lived a life that you and I could not. 
who died a sacrificial substitutionary death in our place, all in an effort to display his love for us. Our love for our neighbors cannot be far off because God's love for us was not far off. But the atoning work says more to us about reconciliation than just God's love. Look at verse 10, at this word atoning. This is fresh. I preached on the atonement yesterday at Iron City. This word uh, atoning reveals the inherent need for God's justice to be satisfied. The gospel reminds us that God is just, that our sin calls for justice, that justice demands a price, and that price, Romans 6.23 reminds us, is death. But this word atoning means that Jesus took our place. He took on God's judgment. But not only does Jesus satisfy God's judgment, but he also gives us his righteousness, the, the doctrine of imputation. He, he, we, by through, we through him have been made justified. Now, I've not taken Greek. I'm in law school, but I've done some Greek by night. And my understanding is that justice and righteousness operate in the same word family. That, that, that's to say that if you were a student in the first century uh, and you were to type in justice into thesaurus.com, the word righteousness would pop up. The words could even at times be used interchangeably. Let, let me put it this way. In Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, God got justice by giving us righteousness. I say that to say that we who are now found to be righteous cannot be found calling anything that is unrighteous just. No church or Christian can call something righteous that is not just. That's to say that social justice is not a social construct, but rather the reality that where God's people are, where righteous people are, there will be a more and more profound sense of justice among them. Dr. King understood justice not to be some communist or socialist construct, but a natural overflow from the justified, sanctified life of a Christian. Brothers and sisters, our very salvation is a realization of God's justice. We who are justified, made righteous before God in his atoning sacrifice, ought to be found with our hearts, our hands, and our feet near to causes of justice. Dr. King understood himself not to be a revolutionary, but simply calling the church to live out the gospel that it believed in. It's critical that Christians get this right because a dying world is watching. Would you join me in verse 12? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. 
and we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Uh, verse 12 and verse 13 are in many ways a, a regurgitation of what we discussed earlier, God's character being demonstrated through how we love one another. And that's important in light of verse 14. How Christians love is a witness to the world. How we love allows us to testify of the good news of the scriptures. The early church understood this well. It was often said that the early church uh, were found taking in abandoned children left on the margins outside the walls of cities. This was a marker of the early church to non-Christians. The early church was known even then for buying slaves out of slavery. They did this as a way to point to the good news of God's love through Christ. King wrote in that same letter from jail, if the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Imagine the witness the church could be to the world on the race issue. Imagine if the church was as vocal about racial reconciliation as it is about other issues. Imagine the impact that we could have for the church's witness to the world. It would make no sense to the culture around us for black folks and white folks to be doing life together in a way that we've never done in this country. The world would have to be captivated by that because it does not happen. I, I, I'm often reminded of this when I go to weddings. I cannot count how many weddings I've been to where I've been the only black person there. And what that shows me, quite frankly, is that the sphere of people around so many of my white brothers and sisters is white. Their friends, their family, their coworkers, the people they spend time with only look like them. Oftentimes, people who love Jesus are still living in a world that is white and white alone. We have an opportunity to be an incredible witness of what it looks like to be in community with one another, people of different races and socioeconomic statuses, nationalities, ethnicities, if you prefer, prefer that word. Let me assure you that the indifference of the white evangelical church to your black brothers and sisters can be and has been noticed. I, I often talk to young black people who want, who want nothing to do with the brand of evangelicalism that is present in our world today. They, they've noticed, just like I, how the culture has gone in one direction and the church has strangely followed. I'm thankful, so thankful, for the good work uh, that Lifeline does here. Uh, let me say that I'm uh, so thankful for how the pro-life movement has taken root uh, in the church uh, and how churches are speaking zealously about the need uh, to care for unborn lives and orphans. But let me say this, for decades, black brothers and sisters 
who believe the same Bible you do have watched as white evangelical churches have spoke passionately about rights for unborn children and for pro-life, pro-life causes. And this, let me say again, is good and right. But for far too long, those same groups of Christians have looked at issues of racial inequity and injustice and said that they were too political and that the church should not be involved. At best, this is a blind spot. And at worst, it is blatant hypocrisy. Let me just say, if one of the issues is more political than the other, It's not the race issue. Congress just got together. They never do that. Congress just got together this past year and passed comprehensive legislation about the injustices of our prison system based on race. Congress has not and they will not get together on the abortion issue. Racial inequity is not too political for the church. This has affected the ability of people to see God. Has affected the witness of the church. Dr. King, a black Baptist preacher believed that the church could be a prophetic witness to the world if it would just be the church that it was called to be. He believed that we could testify that the father had sent his son as savior of the world if we would just love one another. But I have hope. Because I believe that, I believe in the love that God has for us, as verse 15 and 16 says. As we labor for injustice in our communities, we do not do so as people without hope. Though we are pressed on every side, we're not perplexed. That is what I love about Dr. King. Even up until the day before he died, Dr. King believed that we would overcome the symptoms of sin that separated us. Dr. King wrote near the end of this letter, we will win our freedom because the eternal will of God is embodied in our echoing demands. Dr. King had the audacity to assert that justice is not optional, that God will see justice done. Dr. King died with that belief. John writes that we have come to know that love that God has for us, that those of us who confess Jesus is the Son of God labor and love understanding the eternal outcome. I have hope because Jesus Christ has come to show us the love of the Father. I have hope because racial injustice will not be always. I have hope because the love of God has been shown to us most explicitly through his son, a son who purchased our freedom with his own blood. A son who was coming back to make the crooked places straight and the rough places plain. I have hope because one day people of every nation, tribe, and tongue will sing together before the throne of our Father.
I have hope because the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I have hope in the words of the old hymn, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As Christ died to make men holy, let us live to make men free while God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God is marching on. But in the meantime, and this already but not yet, I have this simple hope that Christ church will heed the words of John and love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father and our God, you are God and you are God all by yourself. I sense in this moment my own frailty to even speak about these issues, let alone the frailty of the human alone to deal with them. So Father, I and we in this world need you. We need your help. And so I'm thankful that you have not left us to ourselves you draw near to us, that you have given us your spirit. And I, I pray that by your spirit, we would be invigorated, quickened, alive, to be near to the causes of racial injustice and inequity that surround us. Father, I pray that through this, we might be a witness to a dying world that needs to know you that many would see that you have come to redeem not just each of us individually, but you have come to redeem a people, your people. And that those people are people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Each who have been given inherent worth, dignity, and value. Father, I'm thankful, especially on this day, that, that you, that you raised up a preacher, the Dr. Martin Luther King, who came to call the church to its true understanding of righteousness and justice. I'm thankful that his words still ring true. Father, I pray that we would ever be marching on in light of that vision, but ultimately in light of your vision to see justice done in this world. And Father, as we groan at the injustices that are around us, surrounding racial injustice, but also the unborn and orphans as we we groan at the obvious markers of a broken and sinful world. We eagerly await the day when you shall come back to make all things right, when you shall come back for your church. Father, I'm thankful, so thankful for the clear gospel call that Lifeline has Uh, to serve the unborn and orphans and mothers. 
Father, I pray that you would continue to give them grace upon grace to run with endurance the race that you set before them, that you would conform all of us in this room to look more and more like your son each day. It is in that son's saving name that we do pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Defender Bible Study. Today, we're continuing to pray for the country of Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan has 6 million people and 88% of the people practice Islam. Pray that the Kyrg Church would be strengthened and, the, and that the gospel would multiply throughout the country. Pray for leaders to rise up in this country that will assist the furtherance of the gospel as well as better care for vulnerable children. Praise the Lord for five families that are currently in the process of adopting from Kyrgyzstan. We also pray that don't, the doors will open uh, for our unadopted ministry to minister to orphan and vulnerable children within the country of Kyrgyzstan. We pray that the ministry within Kyrgyzstan will continue to find favor with our paperwork uh, and that they'll work hard to make it a priority to get children ready for referrals. Uh, we continue to pray for Jeline, our contact in Kyrgyzstan, to build strong relationships with the ministry, with or orphanage directors and doctors. Pray that he will continue to find favor as he upholds strong ethical standards. We pray that God will lead us to orphanages and churches and individuals we can partner with. Um, we praise the Lord for our team members on the ground, Sasha and Jeline, as they work to serve our families well. Uh, we pray, praise the Lord for our Lifeline team as they work stateside to serve all of our families. Uh, and we want to pray especially for Jeline uh, as he continues to hear the gospel from our families and that he will understand what it means uh, and that he will begin to walk with Jesus. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the doors that you've opened in Kyrgyzstan. We pray, um, God, for vulnerable children and families there that they will, uh, God, be ministered to, that their needs would be met, but ultimately, Lord, that, that they would be led to know and to follow Jesus. God, we pray um, that you would open doors of opportunity and ministry. Uh, God, we pray for our team, both stateside and on the ground, who, who are doing the important work of caring for vulnerable children within Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and God, we pray that you will get all the glory and all the honor from our efforts there. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.